0: Rippey writes with Brian Scott. Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have.
1: What's up bonus pod action late on a Monday night for you, probably Tuesday morning for most of you who are listening to this. But as I mentioned, if you listen to our Sunday slash Monday show, Weldon Rodenberg for most. Ole Miss recruiting specialist. Good Lord, can't talk day. Coming back from Las Vegas was uh, out of pocket last night, but I wanted to get his thoughts on what was a massive win for Ole Miss, what it means, ask him some recruiting angles of it and get some of his analysis on uh, kind of some of the guys that made it happen from Ashanti Sistrunk, AJ Finley, how they adjusted without Jake Springer and get his thoughts. So, Really no need to mince words. We're going to get right into it. A little bit of a different, more direct show today. Just me and Weldon talking for about an hour. Then we'll get out of here and kind of figure out the schedule for the rest of the week as far as the pod goes. So stay tuned for that. But before we get to that, I want to remind you, podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. The world's best gambling handicapping website the inventors of the skybox matrix interval an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel skybox to the top of the handicapping industry. Got some year long numbers from skybox here. They're 56 and 36 in the NFL this year, seven out of 10 winning weeks. One of those weeks got pushed to even, excuse me, one week got pushed to even by eating the juice. So really eight out of 10 weeks, you need to check these guys out. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range, whether that's month long, Season-long, I'd recommend going year-long all sports and riding with Skybox 365 days out of the year. It's going to pay for itself and then some. But if you're looking for something a little more, a little on the cheaper side or something that fits your uh, monthly plan a little better, they're going to have it. You need to check them out skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY and get 20% off. Even more free money as Skybox. All they do is deliver winners. Check them out. Then go see Greg at LB's University Avenue across from Kroger, Rippy Wright Special, RippyRights.substack.com. Type in your email, get a freeze newsletter from me three to five times a week, plus discounted meats. Right now, you get a 20-ounce, 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a five-dollar pack of sausage. That's a hell of the way to kickstart your football watching weekend. Throw something on the grate on the grill and enjoy the games and some delicious meat from LB's. They got all kinds of sausages, seafood, lane train special bacon wrap filet. Greg's got it going on. Check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Here's Weldon. All right, Weldon Rodenberg back from the desert. Looks like he had a big weekend. None of <laughs> you can see him out there. Uh, but <laughs> Chiefs, uh, what, Chiefs Niners, excuse me, Chiefs Raiders game last night, Sunday night football. You had a big weekend. Ole Miss had a big weekend. We had to get you back on to come get your thoughts about the game. Um, for a bonus pod for the people, if you're listening to this and hadn't checked out the Sunday show with Colin Brister, and Nick Suss, check that out. We got into depth, pretty in depth about what happened in the game with Nick Suss, then kind of overall some program stuff with Colin. You watched the game. Uh, you mentioned you watched a little bit of it again on the flight back. Uh, we'll start with the weekend though. How was the weekend?
0: It was a ton of fun. It truly is the best place ever, (laughs) Um, I will say, uh, I mean, we, we got there Friday night, had some fun Saturday, went to play golf at shadow Creek in Vegas, got very lucky to get on that. Um, pretty amazing course, probably the nicest, coolest place I've ever played. Um, I've been lucky to go to a few pretty cool places. Um, went to the Raiders game, which was to say it was a, um, a shit show would be an understatement. Not just, you know, having fun, but the rest of the world when it comes to COVID is just so different from here. It really is pretty amazing. I won't go into it um, a whole oh, bunch. So
1: but they were strict. Like you're saying strict on like mask protocols and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, I'll give a, I'll give a two-minute story on what happened. So Yeah, go ahead. You go the, – the stadium is like right on the strip. It's beautiful from the outside and everything. And we get there, get off the bus, and the security ladies – told us that we had to go to the tent to get our vaccination cards checked in order to enter the game. So it didn't matter if you already had your card on you. You had to go get it verified and given a vaccination wristband to get into the game. We did not know this. So we get there like 45 minutes before the game starts, have to go sit in a line of like 2,000 people, go through a tent where no one's wearing masks. They're huddling you in there just to get your vaccination checked. And they give you like a gri- green wristband if you have it, your vaccination, and then you get to not wear your mask and go into the game. No one told us this. <laughs> so it was a, uh, a stressful beginning. And I'm not – we're not going to get into politics. I'm not an anti-vax, anti-master at all. But it was just a total shit show. And I just was not expecting it. It did not take away from the game. It was fun. It was fun or the trip, but it's just, it really is crazy how different that side of the world is (laughs) compared to um, Houston, Texas, to say the least.
1: No, I know what you mean. And I don't even think that's political. I'm kind of fascinated about the verification of the COVID vaccine card because I mean, how I'm sure yours is just like mine. It's just a piece of paper with whatever the, whatever they wrote down the guy that gave you the shot at the pharmacy. Right. Like it's not like it has some QR code or barcode I thought that was reserved for the microchip they stuck in me so Bill Gates could start watching around what I'm doing all it is is a piece of cardboard i like how do you I understand that I've seen crazy stories of people selling fake vaccination cards but the fact that you would need to go to a separate location to have it verified that I've never heard of that at sporting events maybe it's just because I'm not in tune with anything on the west coast yeah. but when you said that I thought that was bizarre That just seems unnecessary to send you to a tent. So what is the, they just like looking at the front and back? Like what was the verification process
0: like? So the concept makes sense. It's basically just a first checkpoint so that instead of going into the game and having them have to go through security, check your tickets, and check your vaccination, you kind of knock this part out first. And then we basically just walked into the game. I mean, there was no line. So that concept made sense. But it was just like the way they went about it didn't make a whole lot of sense by like not informing anybody. We had no idea. No one at the hotel that we got in the van with had any idea. So we were just incredibly caught off guard. The line was outrageous, even though it kind of went semi-efficiently. And it just, you know, it's this massive tent and no one's wearing masks. So it's like, why are we doing this in the first place? it was just weird. And, and, you know, you have to wear masks inside the casinos and stuff. And I I mean, I get it, but it just, it was like a little shocking since like in Houston, you don't have to wear a mask anywhere. In fact, they like almost frowned upon it. (laughs) So it was was off putting and a little weird, um, but it did not take away from the trip at all, but it was just a kind of an interesting viewpoint for people that probably haven't had to deal with that in a long time. It was like, damn, like this is still going on places. And
1: the game itself was a little weird. Um, So I was kind of halfway paying attention to it last night. I was so tired from, I told the travel story yesterday on the podcast forever. whatever, I was kind of exhausted and we had Yellowstone on, but it's <laughs> I had kind of that on like the second TV, the game, and it, that game just felt weird from the start. And I think the play, obviously that everyone remembers Deshaun Jackson, just forgetting which way he needed to run that game, entire game felt weird. And then, you know, Mahomes kind of did the whole, like, oh, yeah, I'm still pretty pretty good at this shit type of thing.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty convinced uh, Deshaun, you know, gets to Vegas first game and decides that he's going to run the wrong way and fumble out of nowhere, you know, and just makes you think a little bit. Yeah, no <laughs> was kidding. Little, Fresh little, off, little off the heels of a Monday
1: night football game that might be the greatest case for fixing a game of the last half. Uh,
0: yeah, it's a little <laughs> shaking. Yeah, and um, the stadium's really cool a lot cooler from the outside than it is on the inside. I think they've probably got a lot still work still to do on that thing. Um, 40% Chiefs fans I would say. That is a neutral side game. There is no home field advantage for the Raiders. For you betters not a single second of home field advantage.
1: Okay, that's good to report back. So <laughs> it doesn't sound like it's quite Chargers level, but it's it's, no. it's in that neighborhood. That's interesting because I mean there are tons of transplants in Vegas. That would make sense.
0: Yeah, I mean we're sitting around people and like the people behind us are like, yeah, we're from South Dakota. We have season tickets. The people in front of us are like, yeah, like we this is our first game. I mean there's just it's just a hodgepodge of people there, and majority are Raiders fans, but it definitely doesn't feel like it.
1: Interesting. Um, speaking of the stadium, talking about like kind of what everything process going in, you did not have any of that, the old Miss game, but one thing that's probably a good place to start is any. So Ole Miss wins. uh What? 29, 19. The first thought I kind of had yesterday with, with both Sus and Colin was talking about just the day that was for Ole Miss. We don't really need to rehash the game day thing again, but you've been back to a game this year. One of the things I noticed. um, And then we talked about a little bit on the post game show with Ole Miss is the games are much uh, more fluid in terms of, like it feeling like a production. There are a lot of times during the Luke era and really partially times during the freeze era too. This is not even really specific to Luke at all. It's more of a Kiffin staffing thing, or maybe it's just marketing in general, getting better. It just feels like the game flows more having the players do the DJ thing or get on, not DJ get on the public address at timeouts and some of the different stuff they do during the gajillion stoppages of play during college football feels like everything just flows and runs together better than it did at times to where I felt like it's like in the past, the air has kind of been taken out of the stadium and some stoppages of play. And I haven't felt that way at either of the old Miss games I've attended this year. I'm not sure if you noticed that the LSU game at all, but it just feels like a more tightly run production. And some of that, if not all of it has to be Kiffin's tentacles and just his always be marketing um, kind of persona.
0: Yeah, I would say there's definitely an Kiffin effect, but I don't necessarily know if Kiffin himself has really anything to do with the, uh, the, the game productions. I'm sure he has tried to, um, you know, maybe have his hand in some of the inv- advancements of the light shows and kind of like the tunnels and just adding new and different things. But I think it's really just marketing and the, the production team stepping up and realizing, you know, trying to capture lightning in a bottle of the situation they have. Um, and really just take advantage of it. And uh, you know, you got a game day game at six o'clock at night, and I obviously didn't get to see a lot of the pre-game or post game festivities, but I mean, the videos of like the, the fire cheerleaders, twirlers and the the light show, it just, it looked really, really cool uh, a day later, and I, it sounds like it was a pretty great atmosphere out there. Yeah, honestly, it could be more of just an athletic department thing
1: because one of the things I always forget about is as the Luke era ended, like the Keith Carter era sort of began. I know he was there for that last year, but like he got hired in that no, – no, I can't even keep up with what that was. Yeah, I think it was the summer. So he gets the internment. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You get the point. I don't know. I, that was one thing I noticed. Game itself, just overall, I'll give you one big picture thought, a couple of big picture thoughts you had. Clearly, it was a game that – the defense really shined. What was just your overarching thought that you took away from this game?
0: Oh, uh, I mean, Kiffin's harped on it the whole year about like the difference between good and great and all that. It's kind of been his mantra. And they've always wanted to be able to win a game multiple ways. And you have to do that in the SEC if some one side of your ball is not clicking. And the defense, I mean, uh, just rewatching it even in the second half when Springer went out, yeah, they gave up some yardage, and it was a little bit different of a game, but they were still just so consistent. You know, no big plays, and that's been the whole theme of that defense this year is, I mean, they let up 9, 10, 12, you know, little five-yard outs, and that was, you know, kind of AM's offense. That was, like, literally all they could do um, on a consistent basis, and uh, it was just really, really impressive. Uh, I thought the running backs played great. The makeshift offensive line – you know, Eli coming in and getting his first real game action, it feels like, and really playing well, consistently playing well. And uh, it was a really, really impressive performance. And I I think it's a, a really, really big step forward for the program.
1: Did you feel like the defense had been building to this moment a little bit? Because once I took a little bit of a step back, thinking about some stuff on Sunday to write in the Monday newsletter and really talking about it on the podcast a bit, it seemed like I mean, I didn't see this coming. I mean, the single most shocking thing to me was how Ole Miss sort of kind of kicked a and ass and pushed them around a little bit on the line of scrimmage on the defensive side. a and couldn't really get anything going at all in the running game. And it seemed like Jimbo – I know he came out in the first, like, down – or, excuse me, drive, drive and a half and went, like, pass happy, but it was the short passes like you mentioned. But it did feel like once Ole Miss stopped, um, particularly Spiller, the other kid that I can't ever pronounce his name correctly – um, ashamed. Yeah, Shane had had more success, but it just didn't seem like uh, Fisher got a little bit, as I dropped my microphone, impatient with the running game. Some after Ole Miss had some early success with it, but I was surprised that like that was the single most shocking thing to me because we had both kind of just conceded, okay, Ole Miss is going to give up some yards, but how are they going to do around by the red zone? And that like the that didn't end up being the case at all. I think a M had 141 yards on 29 attempts, and there was just a um. They played, I made this point yesterday, but they played with an, an edge. Like, I don't know if you noticed part of this watching the game again today, but like Sam Williams was borderline, like, goading dudes into personal fouls. Like, he kind of headbutted one of the dudes after one of the play. Um, You know, Ole Miss had some, I won't say iffy plays on the boundary towards the sideline, but they were playing every bit through the whistle. There just seemed to be a confidence in a a, I hate using the word swagger just because, one, it sounds weird. And two, what the hell does that actually mean? But they kind of moved around like a good defense, like they believed they were a good defense after the first couple of drives. And I'm not sure we've seen that at times this year, even though they've had some success over the last month. I mean, when you literally look at it in totality, through the injuries on the offensive side of the ball, the defense has kind of carried this offense because they won against Liberty. They won against LSU. You could definitely call that a defensive game. You corral plus the defense won the Tennessee game for them. But even in the Auburn game, they had every opportunity because their defense, they really carried them since the Arkansas game as they've dropped like flies on offense. And that's something that I'm not necessarily sure I would thought I'd be saying in November of this season when we first started doing this in August.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just complimentary football. Um, Jimbo had a very interesting game plan, to say the least. I think they threw Calzada 42 times, which. I, I surely would not have done it, but he's Jimbo's pretty good at what he does. So I, I don't know exactly what he saw that, you know, we haven't seen from them, but um, the defense definitely, I mean, I don't have enough swag to say the word swag, but I, that's I probably it. the
1: best way to articulate <laughs> that. I just can't say it because I'm not that
0: cool. That's how I've always felt about it, but they, I mean, they played so hard and it was one of those cliches of, you know, getting 11 hats to the ball, but it really felt like once, Someone made contact. I mean, Ole Miss was just swarming them. And even when Calzada completed some of those empty empty easy throws that uh, I predicted he'd have, they they didn't go anywhere. Corners made tackles, and that's something that Ole Miss has been horrible at the past few years. Um, And they just really trusted what they were going to do. And if you have confidence and trust your defense – like Durkin clearly has these past few weeks, you can call different things, you can get more pressure, and that confidence builds game to game to game, whereas you're not doubting yourself, you're playing free, you're playing fast, and that has to be built really through gameplay. You know, it's kind of see it and believe it, and they've seen it and done it these past few weeks and finally kind of came to fruition against what many people thought was going to be a really tough matchup for them.
1: You mentioned the Springer aspect of it and him going out of the game. And yeah, I was like, you, I was like, yeah, they gave up some yards. But when you look at it, and I noticed this a little bit more watching it the second time, they gave up. So he goes out of the game and they gave up, I think, the field goal drive and then the touchdown drive. And so it's like, oh, shit, here they go. Like 15, 13. Offense isn't doing much. But as they were having to make the adjustment to move a couple guys around, Otis Reese slide back over looked like they did a couple of three linebacker thing, uh, some three linebacker stuff. I know Tashim Johnson didn't play in this game. Uh, that was an oversight I had when I was writing down the notes. Suss mentioned he thought some of the three linebacker stuff was maybe in response to Tashim as opposed to Jake Springer exiting the game. I just didn't notice it until after he left. But I say all of that to say it seemed like it took them about a drive, drive and a half to kind of get adjusted to life without Jake Springer because most of that fourth quarter, they were really, really good. Like the only time A&M really consistently moved the football up and down the field. I felt like in this game was in, was on the drive that Springer got knocked out and then the touchdown drive after it, I might be missing one in between, but basically those two drives were the only time that A&M had much sustained success. Then after that, once they got settled in or whatever adjustment needed to be made, they were really good. I don't know if you noticed the same thing, but that seems like a good sign as well, because hell, I know they only had him for one game, but those three in between after he got hurt against Louisville, it did not look like that.
0: No, absolutely. Um, I mean, it always takes a little adjustment. You're moving players around, and it seems like, you know, when Springer comes out, he doesn't have like a set backup. It's more of a, all right, we're going to have to change the whole defensive personnel, um, which isn't totally unnormal, you know, if like a, a player from an NFL team goes out, they don't have an official backup. You, you play more nickel or more dime or something like that. Um, and that's clearly what they did. And, yeah, it takes a few drives to get used to it. But it's not like AM was just, you know, all of a sudden you know, score on this drive and the next drive, the next drive. It, it took time. It took a lot of effort for them to get through the Ole Miss defense. And, you know, the offense kind of was stagnant in the second half. So that means your defense is out there for more plays, which kind of affects the, the legs of some of those guys who have to play every single down. So I think it was a, a combination of, yes, yeah, Springer went out, so that affects the defense. But when the offense can't drive and force some time of possession, you, your defense is just out there so much longer, and eventually you're going to miss a few tackles and make a few mistakes. Um, that's just not a theme that can stay up, basically. Um, and I think that was as big as anything for the team in the second half. I wrote today that I actually didn't put out the Monday newsletter
1: to write before we started recording. But it felt like in the stadium. I mean, I know it felt like this in the stadium, at least my section. I don't think I was alone on this. You kept waiting for the proverbial dam to break. OK, the offense isn't doing anything. When is this defense either going to wear down because they don't have depth? or when are they going to finally let a big play slip or just find a and is going to finally figure this out and retake the lead. And that never happened. And I think that plays into something that I was talking about again, writing today was I guess the perception of this defense changing as the results have come, you know, a lot of times, I mean, you see this, this is just kind of what we do in the media or content sphere is when something happens, I think the NFL is the best example of this. It takes us, three or four weeks to catch on to it. It always seems like we're a couple of weeks behind a development. And now you've had three or four weeks in a row where this defense has played pretty good. Do you think they're per- like, the way this defense is perceived is changing because they kept waiting for it to break and something bad to happen or them just finally, you know, allow a touchdown and that never really happened. They sustained it throughout the course of a game. And if this had happened against Louisville and then again, against Austin P and Tulane, I wouldn't have like expected something like that against Alabama or whoever the sec opponent would have been. It doesn't matter who it is, I guess is my point to where now, like I think I might expect it a little bit more. Like it just seems like they are much more of a good defense as opposed to, Oh, how did this happen once? Can they repeat it? If that makes any sense at all.
0: Yeah. I think the story has definitely changed on this football team and it it takes some time for, I guess, fans and even some media to, to see it and get used to it. But, this is a good Ole Miss defense. It uh, They play their ass off. They don't give up big plays. And, uh, I mean, the standards for defense in college football have been lowered pretty significantly just because of how the offenses are run and how much more talent there is on offense and the rules that benefit the offense. If your defense gives up 26 points a game, which I think is what they've been doing, at least around that for the past five games, you're a good defense, <laughs> That's, I mean, you can't – and not everyone can be Georgia and give up, like, less than 10. You know, they're probably around 50th or 60th in the country. And before the season, we said if that was something that they were at, that that kind of ranking for total defense and scoring defense or whatever, this team had a chance to go 9-3 and or 10-2. and And that has really kind of come to fruition. And it was offense early, but lately, as everyone has seen, it really has been the defense kind of carrying – the boatload for the team, not everything. They had not been carrying the whole team, but really kind of stepping up and playing complimentary football, whereas it used to just be offense and defense surviving.
1: And when you look at this season in its totality to this point, so you're through 10 games, it's really only you could make a case and there's context to be added. And it's not like a concrete, I, I'm not throwing out a take here and expect it to be taken as fact but it really has just been the Arkansas game. I know they allowed 42 points or whatever it was to Alabama, but as we pointed out at the time, there's when the game, when Ole Miss got just absolutely boat raced and it became 28, nothing or whatever it was three of four out three of Alabama's four touchdown drives in that first half started in plus territory because of the crappy spots and the turnovers that the Ole Miss offense kind of put the defense in. And so like, to me, the, 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 Arkansas game was kind of like, okay, is the are these guys bad? Do they suck? To it, I didn't have that feeling after the Alabama game. It was a combination of, yeah, they weren't good, but man, what can you expect it from a good defense when you get put in those suboptimal situations per se? So, like, you can make an argument outside of the Arkansas game; they've been pretty serviceable in pretty much every game they played this year. If you want to throw Alabama in kind of the in between category. It's kind of whatever lens you'd like to view that game through. But outside of the Arkansas game, it hasn't been kind of the, the knife through butter, Swiss cheese, uh, Ole Miss defenses of the past. They've been pretty good for you know eight, nine games, depending on how you want to look at it.
0: Yeah, and it's weird because we've talked about it after watching the Arkansas game is that that defense didn't have Jake Springer and they were still good for like two and a half quarters, like really good like holding them. And then it got to a a tempo fest and, you know, neither team could stop a nosebleed.
1: That was like the 95 play game, right? When Arkansas, didn't they have something ridiculous snap count?
0: Yeah. And it Miss did too. And it was just, it just got to a weird game. And yeah, the defense did not play well and they were conservative and didn't mix up a lot of things, but they were good for two and a half quarters. And um, the Alabama game, you know, We the defense was put in terrible, terrible positions because of the fourth down stuff, three, four drives in a row in that first half, and you know Alabama they're still I guess a little bit more mortal, but they're incredibly talented. So it happens, and they they've stepped up to the plate. DJ's done an amazing job, and it's kind of really changed Ole Miss's season the way they've played.
1: All right. So one question I probably should have asked this three months ago. What was the deal with the code defensive coordinator titles, and what's with the dynamic? Because like it was very much pitched as a, I say pitched. It was I, I left so early on; it doesn't really matter. But what is like Partridge's role versus Durkin's from like the like? I know you weren't around it a ton, but just after that, like what is the what is the code defensive coordinator role mean? Because it is Durkin's defense. I'm just curious what the reason for the title is.
0: There's always, tons of different reasons for titles. the The majority of the reason in all of college football is just for a different pay you can get paid more if you have a co-defensive coordinator role but but Partridge has a huge role in that defense um he's not calling the plays and calling the defense but it comes to strategizing kind of being the manager of the defensive side of the ball kind of the general manager of the defense not necessarily from a recruiting standpoint from just a an overarching standpoint helping DJ and they have a a good relationship and a lot of trust with each other so it's a good combination but it definitely is dj's um defense does chris
1: specialize in one area or is it just kind of like you mentioned just a kind of a back and forth bounce it off him type thing and obviously they recruit but i was just curious if he like if there if he had an area of expertise
0: yeah he um he he's back there with the safeties and he, it- he he's i think he's coaching DBs and safeties and um He does a lot with the scout team as well. So he's dealing with a lot of the younger guys. Um, He's kind of all over the place, but I I think he's coaching safeties.
1: I was just curious about that because I know like on the surface, it sounds like a dumb question, but like in the freeze era, like I think Luke at one point when freeze was here was named, like he was technically a co-offensive coordinator, but like the example I'll give the way that was pitched when they were hired as co-defensive coordinators, we had an off the record meeting. One of the last things I went to before the pandemic and I kind of left the job where we were allowed to talk to Kiffin and the coordinators, um, off the record for like an hour, did some lunch or whatever. I don't even remember. There was nothing noteworthy from it, but Partridge and Durkin came to whereas, like, if we wanted to talk to Dave Wamick, and I know it's a little different because it's freeze's offense, like Matt Luke was not coming as well. We were not coming to ask him about offensive scheme stuff. So that was the main reason I was curious about that. But anyway, kind of back to the game. As good as the defense was, you mentioned the the Jake Springer aspect of it and them adjusting when when he went out. Another guy that really emerged in the second half, and I didn't notice him playing as much in the second half, Ashanti Sistrunk, you could argue, made the two biggest plays of the game. It's 15-13, to A&M gets the ball on their own 14 or own 12, something like that. He, if I'm not mistaken, was the guy that batted Calzada's first down pass and almost tipped that sucker up and picked it off. And then was Johnny on the spot on the second play to where he, like, He didn't like undercut the route or anything, but he was sort of on the guy, you know, right as he caught it. If you want to use the white on rice cliche and what happens, the guy tips it and all of a sudden the ball ends up in his bread basket. So it's a great play either way. What is kind of your read on what you saw from him as a player when you were there, because he's seemingly gotten a lot more playing time, both in the second half last week, but you've, you've sort of seen, I would say little teases of that over the last three, four weeks or so when you kind of look at some of the snap count stuff.
0: Yeah, he was a guy that we had a lot of, uh, we really liked him. He uh, is from Louisville or Louisville or whatever, however, he pronounced that in Mississippi. Um, and his biggest, I guess, setback was he really struggled to keep on weight. And, you know, he came in like one. I mean, he was legitimately like six one one ninety, 190, trying to play linebacker. And he was always a very good athlete and very instinctual, but just couldn't put on the weight. And, it, you know, it's just a classic case of someone having to do a little bit more developing before they just get thrown in there to the wolves. And he looks bigger. He looks faster. Um, he's he's playing behind two pretty good linebackers. But I, I've said this year that when I've watched him play, when he's gotten in there, he's always made a pretty big impact. Um, not to the level of <laughs> we saw in this AM game, but he always knows what to do. Really smart kid. And um, it's really good to see him having some success.
1: And then the other one is the the pick on the next drive where uh, AJ Finley takes it to the house. That guy that's really sort of come into his own here in the second half of the season and continually improved. We talked about the guys from that 2019 secondary that just kind of had to play by default, and some of them are kind of trying to kind of turning into good SEC players now. Do you think there was any trickle-down effect of Springer coming back that had any sort of effect on Finley? Because that was something Nick Suss alluded to yesterday that I hadn't necessarily thought about. But it seems like that timing sort of kind of coincided with it as well. I don't know necessarily what that means from a position standpoint. What wasn't – am I wrong? It's like he was playing some uh, – he was playing multiple positions and now he's seemingly kind of settled into that one?
0: Yeah, I don't think that would be – a incorrect statement um you know it's really tough to tell like what positions dbs are playing at especially when you've got six on the field i mean you know what the two corners at but you know a lot of these guys are pretty versatile in what they do and i think aj you know coming out of high school he played corner so he has experience there especially cover skills and i think he just really needed to grow into like a complete and total safety and he played as a freshman for basically the whole second half of that year and He's got a ton of experience and there's really nothing he hasn't seen yet. And when you're a really hard worker, a really smart kid and have a great football instincts, you know, things happen pretty easily for you. And being a really good athlete doesn't hurt either. And uh, he just continues to make plays. He's just always in the right spot. And that is so key when you're playing a defense like this. Uh, just to be know where you're at, then the next part is to make the plays. And he's been able to do both of those, and it's been really, really big for this defense. One other thing that stuck out, Dean Leonard seemed like he played a hell of a game, at least
1: from a pass protection standpoint. And, again, that's so hard to tell, and I always feel dumb saying that – not feel dumb saying that, but I always say that with a grain of salt just because I don't really know what goes into the, you know, minutia of every play. But that was another thing that stuck out was not only was Ole Miss – you know, they allowed a couple of, some of the short passing game, but they were on it most every time. On some third down when Calzada kind of had to throw the ball sh- like around the sticks or right at it, Ole Miss had a, quite a few fairly important pass breakups, and I thought Dean Leonard made three or four pretty important plays in that game. I That, to me, was the most I'd noticed him in one game, which I guess was would turn into me writing that's the best game I've seen in play. I don't <laughs> know if that's actually the case, but that is yeah. the most, like, noticeable – oh, wow, there's Dean Leonard again. That was a massive play. That seemed like that happened three or four times, particularly watching the game a second time.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's been a pretty consistent staple in the defense since he got here. Um, he was one of the Canada kids, and he um, he had great Canada film. He We were, like, really, really excited to get him, and that was a lot of partridge just with connections up there to get him and Tavius Robinson. Um, just really being a dynamic and uh, outside of the box thinker to grab those two guys who have made a pretty important impact to this team. And he's just super, super, super steady. You know, he's not a guy out there like Stingley, just like jumping routes and picking things off and doing crazy stuff. But he doesn't get beat very often. He is really, really good in the air with the ball. And he's an incredibly sure physical tackler. And that's a huge, huge part of playing corner in this defense. And He's been great, and I agree. I thought he played phenomenal. And, you know, uh, DeMond Demas is a freak of an athlete and a freak of a receiver, and you can get beat by him and be worried about it all day long because that's how good he can, can be. And, you know, Dean never really seemed to be that threatened by him, which was impressive.
1: No, and then on top of that, I believe the – I mean, the, the closest this game got to getting weird was the – Balls out Calzada threw down from like the 35 yard line or whatever. I can't remember what point in this game was. I think it was the drive where they made it 15 to 13 with the field goal. And, I believe he was going down the right side and battle felt beat a little bit, but kind of caught up enough to it to distract him enough. It wasn't a clean drop. I wouldn't say that was some sort of Jalen Ramsey. Holy hell. How did he get to that play? It looked like there was some separation there, but miles battle had a pretty important play there Took That goes a touchdown. And all of a sudden that's 18, 15 or 16, 15, whichever one would it end up being that that turns into a completely different game. So I thought it was a pretty damn solid game by the secondary as a whole. And, you know, I mean, Jalen Jones is not like a linchpin in this secondary at all, but I don't know what his injury status is. I didn't even really have him on my radar as playing in this game, given the way that injury looked and they didn't have him and they didn't have Tashin Johnson. And you didn't really miss a beat. You talk about, we talked, I think we mentioned a lot early in the season, particularly going into it. If there's one place that actually probably has some real depth, on this defense, it is the secondary. And now you're in November and you're down two guys and you played a hell of a game without them.
0: Yeah, I, I would completely agree. And, you know, last, last year we signed like five or six, seven, maybe even DBs, and, you know, three or four of those guys have played significant minutes. And some of those guys have kind of gotten in there and gotten some more work. So there, I mean, there's guys that they like and trust that, are pretty good players. They're just really young and haven't even been able to get in there that much. So uh, they, they've done a really good job with that. It's part of the roster and just the way offenses are these days. That's huge.
1: Flipping over to offense Ole Miss won this game because it ran the ball pretty well, despite the red zone was, I mean, the reason the offense I thought got off to a pretty good start early in the game and at least did enough and scored enough points to win this game. It wasn't a masterpiece by any means it was because of the way they ran the ball. And this is not any sort of hard numbers, crunching analytics here, but something I figured out today by looking up some stuff when I was writing when Ole Miss in their eight wins this year, they have run the ball for 320 yards or more. Three times they have run the ball for 250 yards or more in six of the eight wins and 188 yards or more in seven of the eight wins. The 188, was against Louisville to where you remember that that in the second half, they sort of kind of folded it up, got a little bit vanilla. So I'm not sure how much stock you'd put into the actual yardage total there. And yeah. then, of course, the one exception was last week where they run for like 142 and just kind of get out of that game and survive. But point being, an old Misses wins, they basically run it for 200 or more and, hell, more times than not, 250 yards or more. And in the two losses, they've run for 141 and 78 against, or excuse me, 157 against uh, Auburn and one and 78, excuse me, just like not 178, 78 against Alabama. That can't be a coincidence by any stretch. That seems like a pretty good indicator of what makes this offense go. And look, I know there's injuries and all kinds of other stuff that go into it, but it seems pretty simple when this team is running the ball well and they can get around that 200 yard mark. They're going to have a good chance to win. And when they don't, they're not going to look very good while doing it, even if they do have a chance to win. I think you saw that against Liberty.
0: Right. I mean, this is kind of the staple of the offense. It's the philosophy. It's it's run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. And then if they stack it, then you kill them over the top. And this whole year, even when they haven't run the ball well or efficiently early, they've, they've stuck with it and Levy has kind of refused to do what many will do and just say, screw it, we can't run it today. We're just not going to try. And he just sticks with it, keeps it going. And I think this was Ely's – I think it was his career high in yardage, but I really do think it was his best game as as a Rebel by kind of like leaps and bounds. He was physical on the inside, um, kind of got some of those efficient, you know, three-, four-yard runs that could have been one yard. Um, he broke open a few, made some guys miss, ran over a guy. I mean, it was just he did everything, caught the ball out of the backfield well. And when you have him playing like that and trusting what he needs to do, it just makes everything so much smoother. And, you know, I think the offensive line kind of fell off a little bit late, and I think that's a a credit to how good A&M's defensive line and front seven really is. You know, they had a tough start, uh, but kind of settled in. And even when they did, Snoop, came out and kicked them uh, in the teeth a little bit towards the second half. I mean, they just really played a complete running performance offensively, um, which is what they've been trying to do all year. And sometimes it worked really well, like you said, and sometimes it hasn't been as pretty.
1: Ely finishes – I think you're exactly right. I think it was by far his best game here. And he finishes, what, with 24 carries and like 150-something. I had it up a second ago, but I haven't at think I exited out of it, but it doesn't really matter The we talk. It seems like we come back to this every week, the rushing disparity in terms of like who gets the ball and when this week, you see Jerry Ely, 24 carries 152 yards, 6.3 yards per rush. Then Henry Parrish and Stu Connor go for nine for 58 and 11 for 55. Respectively. I thought it was one of those situations like LSU where all three made a pretty sizable impact in the game, but clearly Ely was, I mean, he got more carries than both of them combined. I'm curious. We talked about this at different times this year, and they fared great against Arkansas without Ely. I think he was out of that game with a concussion. And we were talking about at times, like maybe you just do the whole Snoop Connor, Henry Paris thing and mix Ely in to where now it seems like you put any stock to the fact that you need to feature Ely and work the other two guys in. And I know there's like two games left in the season. So this might be a moot point, but it just seems like that guy, when he kind of gets into the second and third level, he's very hard to catch in general and slow down before it turns into 30 to 50 yards thing. And I'm just thinking about it from an odds perspective, the more carries you give that guy, the more chance he's going to bust a home run type of thing. Like, and also it seemed like he got better as the game wore on when he got to that 13 to 15 carry Mark, he seemed like he was even better. I'm just curious if, you have guys like I wouldn't necessarily think you'd think of Ely as like a volume back or whatever, where it's like, like the Derrick Henry, where it's like, get him nine carries before he's even kind of like lubed up, go like and kind of warmed up in this game. <laughs> yeah. But like, do, does, do you think there's an element of that to Ely at all? Because in the games that where he's totaled the most carries, it's been his best games by far.
0: I think this is the, the the Ely that they've wanted the whole year the guy who's healthy, the guy who's the, the main back. And you you put in Snoop and Parish in situations, but have Ely be the, the all-around player that he is. Not the bell cow, because that's not really the right term for what right. Ely is, but just kind of the, the playmaker that he can be. And I think from a just a snaps count standpoint, this is kind of the distribution that I was expecting going into the season. I think really everybody was, including the coaches. Um, and now when he's playing well – and the offensive line can block efficiently, this is the attack that they were expecting the whole year. And, um, you know, it's happy you have it now, and it was a big game to, to ha- make it happen. Um, and Snoop and Parrish both played very well. You know, they weren't bad by any means, but I do think this is exactly the rotation and the style that they want to run the ball. Their numbers
1: with two games left is kind of bizarre, You've got Ely, ninety six carries, five eighty eight, four touchdowns. Parrish, ninety eight carries, five twenty nine, two touchdowns. Stoop Connor, ninety five carries, five oh nine. So you're talking about a three carry disparity from like out of all three of them from top to bottom, and they're all in the five hundred ish yard range, which is kind of interesting. And to your point, when you're talking about like this is the way we thought it would be, it's probably the way it should be. I'm if I'm not unless I'm. Unless I'm misremembering something, Ewe is the only one out of the three that's missed a game. So you're talking about Ewe being second in carries, and he's missed one game. So like he would probably be ahead had he played the Arkansas game. But I don't know. I don't even know if there's any sort of rhyme or reason or anything to derive from that. I just found that to be crazy how similar they were in both yards and carries. Somehow Snoop Conner's got 11 touchdowns through the other two of six combined. I kind of get that. It seems like they've used that pretty effectively. Yeah. And then the other part of that is Corral is at 126 for 523. There can't be too many teams in the country that have four dudes that have rushed for 500 yards at this point outside of some service academies, right? That's pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, that, that I can't imagine there's one besides the service academies. Um, but I think it's kind of Kiffin's and Lebby's, uh, well, really more Kiffin's NFL background and the way he kind of views rosters and how you manage players. And uh, he, he used Derrick Henry to a almost like negligent manner by how much he ran him. And now he's like, okay, like that's not necessary. We need a stable and we need to use that stable correctly and efficiently. Make sure they all have their legs, make sure they're all healthy. Um, and I think they've done it incredibly well this year. And, I don't know recruiting-wise what the effect it will have, but if I'm a guy that's a top-notch running back, wants to go to the NFL, to go into college and not leave with, like, 400 carries is probably what I would like to do. I'd like to be part of a system, not be the one guy getting, you know, 70 – not 70, but, like, legitimately Derek Henry used to have, like, 28 carries to 30 carries a game. That's just not the way the football works anymore.
1: 14, 15 Iron Bowl to add to your point because it made me think. Someone, I have an Alabama buddy that's brought this up a lot. Twenty fifteen Iron Bowl, forty six carries yeah. for Derrick Henry in that game,
0: and that's that's even an outlier for for that sake for for right. Henry's season that year. I mean, that's obviously a completely different uh dynamic, but it, it's just the way that they've thought about it. It's the way they've gone about it that they want these guys to be fresh, and that's really for the whole team, but especially a room. Where you've got three guys who you all trust. You all can know they can do all different things. And to be able to you know employ them in the correct manner is always something easier said than done. But I think clearly from just a, a rep count, snap count, uh, they've done it pretty much to the book and pretty, pretty impressive.
1: And you mentioned, I thought the recruiting point was a really interesting one you made there. It's also not like, it's not like they're, it's a lack of opportunity to where – I'm trying to think of examples in the past, but I can't think of one off the, off the top of my head where Ole Miss had a guy that turned into like a halfway decent NFL running back but like didn't really get to showcase what exactly he was fully in college. But that's kind of the point. That's not what this is at all. I mean, all three of them I feel like have had ample opportunity to show what they are as running backs. You I know, mean, 95 carries through uh, 10 games is 95 carries through 10 games. They're all basically getting 10 touches a game. You know, plus whatever they do in the passing game. So you're right; it's it's not having the the miles put on you in college as you know running backs as Derrick Henry as the outlier is devalued as ever in the NFL. So it's it seems like a hell of a mix of getting able to showcase what you are as an NFL prospect on top of not having the miles on you. And I feel like it may be a little bit difficult to achieve that balance at times.
0: It, it definitely is, and um, just the way the positions play, like you said it's just completely different from the days of Adrian Peterson, uh, Darren McFadden with Arkansas, you know, even that team, you know, you still had Felix Jones and Peyton Hillis. So you're still kind of distributing uh, to a different level, but I mean, LSU used to have years where it was Spencer Ware, Michael Ford, Jeremy Hill, and Kenny Hilliard. You yeah. had four guys and Alfred Blue. You had five guys playing the NFL on roster. Um, that's like the goal and exactly what you want to get out of your team and I think they, you know, necessarily may have may not have been exactly that, but it's been damn close, and um, it, it's been awesome to see. I think it's exactly what they envisioned in the beginning of the year when you heard Levy talk about Ely and how much they knew they needed to give him the ball, but they knew they trusted the other two as well.
1: Kind of putting a bow on the Ely thing before we get into a couple of the things that were not so great about the offense. It just seemed like he really got them going early in the game. I mean, the touchdown driver, they get it up 24 to nothing, excuse me, where they go 94 yards to go up 10 to nothing. They're not, that would be a 21 point play. They're kind of backed up in their own territory, and he breaks through some contact and busts one for 24. And so now all of a sudden, you're one play and you're at the 30, and that completely changes the drive. Like, yes, it's a 94 yard drive or whatever they had to go do. But when you bust it on a pretty basic run concept on the first play, it's basically like you took over at the 30, as dumb as that sounds. I just think not having to work to get out of their own territory was huge on that drive. And I thought there were three or four runs he had early in the game that really seemed to get the offense in a flow and a rhythm. And the other aspect of it, which I, this is not a perfect analogy, but I dubbed it the chicken and the egg thing in the newsletter today. They ran the ball well, and guess what we saw for the first time in three weeks? Tempo really torched ANMR in this game. And there was even before that you could even tell there was an established like at, like they were establishing the run well. There was an effort to go fast, fast, fast. And I'm curious what you think that was. Do you think it was more health? Do you think it was more, okay, these are two contrasting styles? Let's be more of the extreme than the what AM is. Or Is it something else? I I had a third option that I thought wrote down yesterday, but I can't remember what it was. What do you think went into the fact that they were able to so effectively use tempo where you've seen them get bogged down at times the last month?
0: Well, I think they had a lot more of their guys back. You know, Braylon played a lot. Drummond played a lot. Mingo suited up. I don't think he really got on the field, if I remember correctly.
1: He did not play, no. But he was dressed.
0: Yeah. So, when you finally got your receivers out there – that know exactly what to do tempo wise. And if that's the game plan you want to implore, you're gonna do it effectively when you've got everybody on the same page and you don't have backups in there. I mean, they were going as fast as they've gone the entire year. And, you know, I think Kirk even said it like, you know, a you can practice it, but you, you can't do what they do. You just can't, Not no scout team can do that. Um, and it killed them early and honestly, uh, if they had been a little bit more effective in the red zone, uh, it could have been 31-0 at halftime, and it could have been game over. And that's all they needed to do. But the tempo killed A&M. You know, they're of the ball with like nine, 10 seconds. You can't even call a defensive play in that kind of time frame. Uh, so it, it was killer. Uh, and it was exactly clearly what they wanted to do early. And if they had just capitalized, it could have been lights out pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, you're right, because, I mean, they get down pretty much to the – not inside the one, but they got inside the five three times and only got one touchdown out of it when that tempo was really crushing them because you had the corral fumble way the hell back where they sat on it, and then you had the fourth and goal to Casey Kelly that didn't work, and then – I mean, to a credit, they, they pushed them, but like it took Ole Miss on their first touchdown to fourth down. The Drummond Slant or whatever that route was took it to fourth down. But you're right. If they turn those into touchdowns, which I think everyone listening out there, particularly if you're in the stadium, was like, my God, how is this shit only 15 to nothing in halftime? I mean, yeah. Ole Miss outgained a and 408 to 91 in the first half, and the score was 15 to nothing with 13 offensive points. I don't even know if you could do that again if you tried. But you're right, the, the running game – And having the guys back probably helped the tempo more than anything. I think what you're talking – I didn't think about that earlier. We talked a lot about knowing what to do at receiver. Having Drummond and Sanders out there that can – the processing information thing with Dennis Jackson, like having both of those guys out there to line up and go fast, it seems to enable you to do that more than anything when having guys that don't. What did you make of the red zone struggles? I know that was a sore subject with a lot of people. I thought it was twofold. Should Ole Miss have been better in the red zone? Sure. But they got down in those weird situations inside the five twice. Ole Miss has not fared well in those all year, even when they were fully healthy. I know some of it is them having to reshuffle around the offensive line, but they haven't been able to run behind the guard and center and just run over someone for three yards the entire year. And they're playing arguably the best defensive front that they played all season. So like, yes, I thought Ole Miss could have been better. I don't think, fumbling it and then having them kick it around for 25 yards is an optimal strategy. I didn't no. love the Casey Kelly thing. Although the, whoever that guy was that got off the block made a hell of a play, but I thought it was a combination of that and AM just being really good. That's a really good defensive front that the cliche you make you, they make you earn every yard. I thought it was a combination of that. I didn't think it was complete ineptitude.
0: No, it, it, there's definitely a combination of factors. Um, I guess we can get to it. It's not Corral's best game by any stretch at all I mean the two fumbles were just killer absolutely killer Um, and it just did not help this team you know they gave away 14 points basically and got three out of both of those drives Um, the the goal line stand is it's kind of a weird deal you see it with Ole Miss and it works a lot more than it doesn't but you know, get down to the one or two yard line. You're, you're not even thinking. You're just getting lined up, and you're running inside zone, and you're just hoping one crease. You just quick, quick, quick. But we have seen that when they kind of don't get that first one, they don't really know exactly what to do next. And that's not saying Levy and Kibben don't know what to do, but it's
1: it's a personnel it's issue. Of,
0: it's a kind of a personnel deal, exactly. You don't want to sub because you don't want them to sub, but then you're kind of not in the most advantageous, you know, personnel formation to to kind of power run inside zone against this team that is very, 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 very good on the defensive line. Um, and they just didn't get it. It's as simple as that, um, you know, corral not being able to be a very effective runner definitely hurts the play calling abilities. Um, I mean, you saw him pull it and that was a poor decision. You should have just given it to him and then run the next play and see what happens. Um, but yeah, it, it's not great. They haven't been great all year, so it's not really that surprising to see them not be great again this game. Um, but they did enough to what they needed to do on offense, and, um, you know, they came out with it, and that's that's fine. But there's definitely – there's only two games left, so it's like a cause for concern. Like, well, you know, the concerns are kind of past. <laughs> it's kind of over. They won the game. But uh, it, it's just kind of a weird dynamic of multiple things that have kind of hurt this team in the red zone.
1: How stupid of a take is it to say at times it almost felt like you would rather them be at the 12 versus the three? Cause they got caught inside the five, three times where you mentioned, like, I mean, there's not a whole lot of passing stuff you can do. You have a quarterback to where it's not, he didn't really factor into the run game much yet. Again, I'm assuming that's mostly a health thing, even though he mentioned after the game, he feels like he could be close to on Now He said this, he said he'd feel close to be fully healthy after another week, but like he's clearly not a factor in the running game. And you're not one of those teams that can just kind of bowl over you for six, seven yards, or three, four yards, or fight for some sort of some sort of short yardage to get over the goal line. It would almost see like to me every time they got in the, inside the five, down to like the three or two, I was like, man, this almost feels like less of an advantage than if they had like you know nine more yards to work with and can do some passing stuff. Is there anything to that at all? I mean. Obviously, you don't want to go backwards and do that. I'm not suggesting that. It just felt like with the way the team's constructed, they ended up in a couple very non and whatever the word is, non-advantageous situations because they ended up at the two versus the seven or something like that.
0: Sure. Yeah, I think this team probably would like to have a little bit more room, give them first and goal from the six, maybe not from the two. Um, you kind of have a few more options and you corral can throw the ball with some space. Um, it's not like the the worst take in the world, but at the end of the day, if you're on the one yard line first and goal, you yeah, want get to be it, yeah. able to score. Yeah. So I'm not gonna give him too many excuses. No, not at all. But so
1: I, I mean, offensively they did enough. It wasn't great. Do you buy anything to the fact that it clearly, you know, it wasn't like you mentioned, it wasn't corral's best game. I thought he was pretty good when like pretty accurate over the middle of the field. Suss pointed out he thought there were some errant throws toward the sideline, but yeah. it seemed like having Drummond back over the middle of the field helped him in the passing game as a whole a ton. Do you put anything into the idea that – so this is the first week they'd had even close to their, you know, full plethora of weapons or anything resembling that in a couple weeks now. Do you put anything to the fact that, well, one, they're not going to have to face the a defense again? Mississippi State's got a pretty good defense, but they've been certainly susceptible to giving up a lot of yardage in the passing game and having some busted coverages. Do you put anything to the fact that you give them another week against a crappy opponent with a full-order complement of guys out there and kind of getting acclimated again that they'll be better for the Egg Bowl? Do you think there's anything to that this late in the year?
0: Yeah, I mean, just healthier, more reps for guys that are coming back. I definitely think that's going to be a big factor. And um, Corral is, I mean, a phenomenal slant thrower. I mean, he he rips it. He is accurate on that ball. Um, his deep ball was not there, but he honestly hasn't been throwing the ball deep for a few games. So I'm not exactly surprised that the, the timing is a little bit off with some of these newer guys that have been in there. Um, I mean, Pearson, you had him open, but – he still – he didn't play that bad. I just – from a you, – you've seen him be so accurate and efficient that it was it's almost weird to see him throw like a, like a, a slot fade, weird route to Pearson there and he almost got picked off and uh, missed Brayland and give him a catchable ball and then miss Pearson deep. It's like we haven't seen that in, you know, 15 games. So it's just a little bit bizarre and really shows you how good he is that when he's a little bit off, it's kind of like glaring. Um, but I do think with some more reps, guys back healthier and get more in a rhythm, be able to do tempo like they want to do. That you'll see that improve.
1: I don't think there's a ton else to get to just from the game perspective because we know exactly what happened in the second half. We kind of hit a, every major storyline, unless I'm missing something overarching. But what do you like? What do you make of a win like this? I mean, they, they, if they they're on the precipice of a 10 win regular season for the first time in program history and this is coming on the heels of you know not two years ago but a year and whatever a year and 50 weeks ago they were issuing a public apology because one of their players took a dog piss on the sideline that cost them the game and now all of a sudden they're on the precipice of a 10 and 2 year i know it's a weird year in the sec but I mean, my God, who would have thought this happened this fastest when you kind of look back and see how quickly this thing has been built? Like, how do you kind of encapsulate just how ridiculously one, how ridiculously hard this is to do as a coaching staff? And two, you know, the amount of credit that goes to both the coaches and the players for actually making this happen. I mean, there hasn't been a game where you look back and you're like, man, Ole Miss was really just non-competitive in that game when they should have been. Like there was, you know, they couldn't block Alabama. And so it was like, OK, this is not going to end well for them. But they've been in every single fight and they won a tough road game at Tennessee. That Tennessee win looks better and better and better by the week. And, you know, Auburn, I would have loved to see what happened at that game if they just had, you know, close to a full combat. If they had what they had going into this game, I would love to see what it would have happened at Auburn. And right. so, what do you just make of this year and how quickly this has happened? Because I'm not even sure you could have predicted this based off what happened last season. And I thought last season was a raging success.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just really a credit to the staff remaking the roster, having the quarterback that they have, and players kind of continuing to step up at different positions. Um, It's been a pretty quick turnaround, and I'll continue to say that having the quarterback that they have makes everything easier, even on defense. It doesn't matter. I mean, he he is that good. He makes this whole thing run, and when he's as good as he can be, this team has always been difficult to beat, even last year. Um, And I think it's been a great step for the program, and I think this is going to be an incredibly confusing and interesting offseason to see where they go from year two to year three. There's a lot of things going on outside of the program, not even have anything to do with Ole Miss with these coaching changes that are going to change a lot of the landscape. You know, you got the transfer portal, and it's been pretty clear that that's going to be the way they're going to build this roster going forward. Um, and, you know, what can you do building off of a potential 10-2 and two season? Um, you know, it, it's going to be now the expectations have risen for this team and what Kiffin can do, what coaches are going to be there next year. Um, I mean, these are things you have to get to after the season's over um, and not harp on it too much right now. But. Uh, it, it's been incredibly impressive. And they've done it on offense and defense, which is not what you've seen uh, from this team. And, you know, it, it's just a credit to the coaches and as much a credit to the players too.
1: And they had, from a recruiting standpoint, you mentioned, I think that's the most fascinating element of this in addition to the coaching carousel. So they, they whatever you want to call it, had two decommitments on uh, Sunday night. It was the Dortch kid and Hurst been reporting in the past that Dort's, they didn't necessarily see that guy as a take and then seem like from things. I read a similar deal with the Hearst kid. It doesn't really have anything to do with either one of those guys. What I was going to ask you was how would you explain to someone who maybe doesn't necessarily follow recruiting on a day-to-day basis, uh, particularly not being in it like you were, how different this current class coming in could be with the, how heavy they're going to hit the transfer portal, as opposed to, You know, just your typical class. I mean, then I I don't even really know how to articulate that question. Just how how big of an outlier is this going to be versus what you've seen really ever in terms of recruiting classes with Ole Miss?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's going to start out as the outlier and then eventually turn into the norm in college football. Um, I I think Lane has taken the standpoint that if you're a high school kid and we don't think you're going to contribute in your first or second year, we're just not going to take that chance. Um, if you've got grade issues, we're not dealing with it. We're not going through compliance and, and scheming to get you in. It's just not going to happen. Uh, if you don't play and, you know, live up to what you thought you were your senior year, you're, you're not going to be a part of the class. Um, I don't totally disagree with any of that, with the way that the transport portal works. I do caution football teams, especially one like Ole Miss, the concept of the transfer portal and building a roster that way, I think is a great way to go about it. But that's also under the assumption that the kids that you want out of the portal are just going to come to Ole Miss. And I think that was a thing that we kind of ran into uh, last year was we evaluated and saw guys we really wanted and they didn't come and you're kind of getting down to the nitty gritty and you're like, well, what are we going to do now? And I think it'll be really interesting to see how the players view Ole Miss coming out of the portal. You know, having a 10-2 season, the way Corral's played in the offense, the defense, I think it'll be more advantageous than it was last year when you really didn't know what this team was. But, you know, you talk about Rattler and Zach Evans and Deion Smith and Miles Burn and all these kids that have come up and talks. You know, talks are great, but that doesn't mean they're going to Ole Miss. So it's it's a weird dynamic of okay you you get rid of the high school kids because you're going gonna go in the portal but the portal is just like recruiting high school kids you don't know if they're coming or not uh, so Some of the be timing to- doesn't
1: line up though right with the early
0: signing period because I know that like
1: all that stuff happening right now is you know I, I think the buzzword is back channeling like a lot of times it seems like you're doing the transfer thing, but all of a sudden now the season ends and, you know, a couple weeks later you've got the early signing period. Do you think that kind of screws with it more in terms of like the timing of it all? Cause you could bank on a couple of kids coming from the portal and then they don't come. And all of a sudden you have, you know, sometimes like two days or something for the early signing period. How do you, how do you view it as opposed to like a, like a time crunch it all, if that makes any sense. That's another fascinating aspect of it to me.
0: Well, that's what I've always said. And I think Kiffin's even brought this up. I think they're going to have to go, to some sort of, you know, we're, we're big on soccer here, some sort of transfer window. I don't think it's sustainable with this portal to have kids jumping in mid-season and off-season and just all throughout at 365 days of the year because there's no control over it. And there's no consistency. But if you have a, a transfer window, transfer portal window that lines up with these signing period dates, I think that's one, it's better for the high school kids because now the coaches and these programs know exactly where they stand and where they can be scholarship-wise. So you're not just screwing over these high school kids. And I'm not saying Ole Miss is doing that or anybody's doing that, but just the sport-wise screwing them over by the way these rosters are going to be developed. Um, You'll just know exactly where you are. And I think we're going to get there, and I think that's going to be something that's pushed pretty heavily coming up. Um, But, yeah, the timing is very, very weird. Um, and I know they've kind of offset some scholarships. Um, the NCAA has to kind of start to heal the wounds of this change. Um, but it's going to be fascinating. I think it's going to be the storyline of the offseason with Ole Miss and with really every single college football program. Um, what are they doing with high school kids? What are they doing in the portal? Um, I still think you'll see the elite programs, um, the A&M's, Ohio State's, Georgia's and you know, I AM, they're not an elite program. Sorry. I hate their fans. <laughs> that's a new thing for me. And we can get into that. But um Oh, go was, ahead. It's
1: a good time as any. New thing.
0: Uh, well, okay, I'll get to it later. But yeah, go re- ahead. The teams that are recruiting at an elite level, I still think they're gonna go heavy high school because they can that's what they've done and they've they've built that reputation that can still do it. Um, but I do think you're gonna see a pretty significant change in the way these rosters are built going forward. Do you
1: think that helps the non-blue bloods you mentioned getting the, the elite programs having them? Because it seems like if they're going to go heavy and get all the top-level high school kids, as you mentioned, that are going to contribute in their first two years, presumably. But like, how do you view that in terms like is it a the classic message board term? Is like, oh shit, the rich are just going to get richer. Is it that cut and dry? Or do you think there's an opportunity to for other programs to recruit via the transfer portal and even the playing field a bit? And I just view it like I don't even I don't even really know the answer, but like the example toward the former half of what I was laying out was the what the Jamison Williams or whatever the kid is from Ohio State that's been so good for Alabama this year. They already have, you know, the best recruiting class in the country. And now you add that deep threat that you was, I don't know if proven's the right word, but at least you knew a little more about him. How do you view that and how that's going to affect the already ridiculous competitive imbalance?
0: Yeah, I I'm not really the one to say that this is uh going to, like, spread the wealth by any means. I think this will be a rich-get-richer situation. Because um, if you're a kid and you're at oh, – what's a, what's a good program? Uh, if you're at West Virginia, you know, and you're leaving West Virginia and you your goal is I want to go play for a team that has a chance to win a national championship. That's what I want to do for my last year, my last two years if you're at West Virginia, you're not going to leave West Virginia to then go to uh, Auburn, you know, or go to, uh, you know, Michigan State. Because it's just like you're on the same playing field. You're going to go to the teams that are presumed to win national championships every year. Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, or Oklahoma. Um, I think it's going to be – the difference is, it's kind of like college basketball, is some of these mid-major guys that transfer that are still really good players – that's kind of where the teams like the old Misses, Mississippi States, Oklahoma States, those kind of programs, you'll just get a ton of those kids. Kind of like these mid-major kids that leave in basketball from Wichita State and VCU. You know, those kids go to like LSU in basketball. It's you know that you kind of slowly build your way up. I still do think if you've got elite players like Zach Evans, Quinn Ewers, these guys that are rumored to transfer. I don't see those guys going down or going equal. They're only going to go up. Um, So I think that's kind of an issue that you're going to see, and I think Alabama and those teams are going to take advantage of it.
1: It's going to be fascinating to see how this offseason plays out for Ole Miss because they're going to have real, real momentum as a program uh, for the first time in quite a while. You saw it a little bit last year, but that weird COVID year just – it was hard to gauge how real anything was. Before we get out of here, around the SEC, any I mean, I know (laughs) – there's one or two things that stuck out. The Auburn collapse. I don't know how much you saw that. Auburn goes up 28-3. State scores 40 in a row. Look, State's playing good football. That's going to be a really tough game for Ole Miss. I, I think it's a decent matchup just on surface level. Forget get what Ole Miss does defensively versus what State tries to do offensively. But that's going to be a tough one. What did you make of just everything that happened around the SEC or wherever?
0: Yeah, we can get on a few points here. I mean, I was – watching the beginning of that Auburn game because it starts earlier over there in Vegas and I literally think I we got to the course when it was 28 to 3. I'm like teeing off on eight or something like that and Sam my little brother texts me and says it's 36 to 28 (laughs) Auburn and I'm like so triggered that I can't even like feel my face because I thought that was like just the easiest you know it was my biggest bet of the day in college football on Auburn and I like like shanked my drive. I like had to get <laughs> myself back together for a few holes. I was like, this is gonna ruin my whole day. Um I went back and watched some highlights and I don't I, I still can't explain what happened. um you know, Mike Leach, when that thing gets rolling and a defense decides they're not gonna be aggressive and Rogers is hitting his throws, it's it's freaking hard to play against them. and Auburn just just laid an egg they just got complacent and they just hit them and hit them and hit them. And Nick's, you know, gets hurt and it hits them, hits them, hits them again and again and again. And it kind of just, you know, it was like a, like a tidal wave of just one thing this way, one thing the other way. It was, uh, it was pretty, pretty crazy.
1: You took the words out of my mouth. It does feel like a tidal wave with the Leach thing where it's like, you don't need to let them get rolling. Like, because there have games where it look terrible. I think of like Kentucky last year, you know, Alabama always does it to them. But like, if you let that thing get rolling, it feels like it can spiral out of control quickly. Is there an element to, like, a difficulty adjusting to what they do on the fly, or is it just as simple as not being aggressive? Like, is there something particular about adjusting to what they need to do, what Mississippi State does on the fly as opposed to something else? Because it yeah. is kind of obscure.
0: Yeah, this this team, the Mississippi State team, they're they're very different from last year. Last year they were a terrible offensive line that teams could get pressure on them running three. Um, this year you kind of have to get after him a little bit. And if you get after him a little bit, you're, you miss an assignment or you you, you miss a guy that these one-on-one matchups, Rogers is playing well, he'll hit the guy. And then you're just kind of playing from behind schematically for the rest of the game. Um, I mean, Auburn poured it on him. But once Mississippi state stopped making dumb mistakes and they got into a rhythm that, I mean, they just kept killing him, And it's, uh, it's a tough scheme to face if that's the case. Dan Mullen,
1: fifty-two to Sanford, that doesn't seem great. Uh, he, I saw in his Monday press conference today, he mentioned that some of the Sanford guys were making catches that you catches and plays you'd be hard pressed to find frequently on NFL Sundays. I believe is the quote. So, uh, spin zone, Dan Mullen giving up fifty-two to a three and five FCS school. Actually, not that bad because they make NFL plays. Congrats to you, Dan.
0: Jeez. I mean, I thought
1: that was broken. I thought that so. Someone said it's 42 35 Sanford at halftime. I was like, nah, you're like, whatever. The score app screwed up. Like, I, how does, I do like, a, if they were playing an SEC game, I'm not sure you get to 42 at halftime without something getting weird. That, that blew my mind. I can't say I watched this game. I said, I'm assuming. No, I did not watch this second this, of this, game, this either, I, I didn't either, but like, my God, that, again, it just feels further and further like that situation's untenable, even though he probably gets next year.
0: Yeah, I agree. I do think I've st- I've gone from thinking he's gone to I do think he might get next year, but I mean, just a terrible look all around. I think it was the most like first half points at FCS school it was like ever scored against a, an FBS school. Um, it was just embarrassing. I just don't even know how to explain it, to be honest, and um, I don't know what's going to happen there, but it, it's just, it's so rocky and it's so, just feels so wrong <laughs> in so many different ways over there. I don't even know how to explain it. So we'll see what happens. But I, I just, I don't think anybody knows. I don't even think Scott Strickland knows what he's going to do yet. It's very weird.
1: I watched zero seconds of Arkansas LSU just because of the timing of the game. I was in the stadium, but Arkansas pulls out the win, whatever. I don't know how much you saw of this. And now Ed has just gone on a, I'm going to tell, everyone how awful everybody is tour uh i mean i guess he has nothing to lose but man i mean he had a couple pretty pretty salacious quotes about um about jake petes what did you make of just this game and everything that happened after
0: uh i mean that they went with nussmeyer we watched a pretty good bit of this game while we were at dinner um went with Nussmeier and that kind of went exactly as I expected. It was a first-year quarterback in an offensive system that doesn't work, making a bunch of mistakes against a pretty good team. Um I just man, I the game who cares about the game? I mean, good for Arkansas. It's a pretty big win for them. They're like 7 and 3, could easily be 8 and 2. Ozeron's comments. Like how Scott Woodward is not just telling him to shut the F up after these games doesn't make any sense to me. I I know that he's a lame duck coach in a lame duck situation, and it's all going to be figured out eventually. But if I'm Jake Peets, like, why am I even calling plays? Why am I even going to practice and doing what I'm doing anymore? If after the end of it, the head coach, who's not even really the head coach is just going to, you know, eviscerate me in the public eye, like, you know, Ogeron said he trusted Joe Brady and he knew there was going to be some adjustments with Pete's. But you made you made the hire because you're chasing the ghost of Joe Brady. You made a hire on a guy who didn't have the experience, and it's your fault. It's not – I mean, Pete's, yeah, it's not good, and there's no doubt about it. It's been really bad. But, Ojan, this is your problem. This is why you don't have a job anymore. Now that you can just, you know, recklessly place the blame on a guy and try to just, you know, for lack of better words, you know, F his whole career up, his career trajectory up, because it's your fault you hired him and put him in a position to fail is so Bush league. And it's honestly embarrassing. And uh, I, I just, I, it's really just embarrassing for Ogeron and LSU right now that they let him do this. And it's, it's a shame because the kids are playing their ass off right now. They really are. And it's impressive that they are, they're being resilient. And I think Durante Jones has done a, Pretty amazing job these last two or three games um, kind of piecing this defense. I have so many injuries together and all those storylines don't mean anything anymore because Ogeron's running his mouth on bullshit that he shouldn't be talking about because he's not the leader of that program anymore. It should be, you know, if Scott Woodward wants to do this, it should be freaking Scott Woodward at the podium after these games, answering the questions because no one gives a shit what Ogeron has to say anymore. And he's just recklessly and freely, saying whatever the hell he wants to after these games when they're losing. And it's all his fault. He is the head coach. He is the one that's gone one on one of six on coordinator hires. It's not Pete's fault. It's just embarrassing.
1: Yeah. You, the last part you hit on was the, the, the thing I was going to add to and I think that's very well said, but like you're again, I, I, the Pete's thing hasn't worked. It's very clear. I mean, now they had, a, if, if Pete's was good, they would have won the Alabama game, but yes. like, he's the one that's one for six on coordinators. That's what I was going to say. It's like, you're the one that's had a problem with pretty much every single coordinator you've hired there, except for Joe Brady, you caught lightning in a bottle. And so like, to me, I'm not a big like pearl clutcher and like, don't get me wrong. I don't really care, but it did just like, I was reading that today and I was like, this is just very unbecoming and very embarrassing. And like, it's just completely unnecessary at the same time as well. But it's also in a way showing not only, but beyond the heart, you're exactly right. This is why you don't have a job anymore, but the stories of why the coaches and the players seem to not be able to stand him anymore. There has to be worse shit like this said behind closed doors. Like to me, he's kind of showing why everyone seemed to have an issue with him internally, which had not always been the case before, particularly with players coaches, a little different story. But to me, he's outlining, he's giving a, you know, holographic viewer, uh, completely clear window view into the program and probably what made it toxic. That was part of what I picked up on today.
0: I mean, the whole thing, you know, no one wanted to go be a coordinator for Ogeron at LSU because they knew the situation was a a dumpster fire, not dumpster fire. is not the right word. It was a very low, uh, you know, there's a great chance I can't think of the word right now. A great chance that you weren't gonna you're were gonna be fired if things went went sideways there, and that's why you know Marcus Williams or the guy that ended up at Notre Dame, you know, they couldn't find an offensive coordinator to save their lives because they knew that the situation down there was not great. So then you end up having to go to your sixth option on offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. It doesn't work out. You get fired, and then in doing so, you turn around and. I mean, Durante Jones got his ass chewed out by Ozron saying, you know, we're entirely too predictable on defense. You know, I watched the film and we don't like, we're just predictable and we're bad. It's like, wh- you did this. It is your fault. And yeah, they should step up to the plate and make their plays. But Durante, I mean, he's been a lot better the second half of the season with like every freaking player hurt. And Pete's has been bad the whole year, but it's your fault. You hire the unexperienced coordinator. You made the decision, and it all comes back on you. You shouldn't be able to then go just drive the Greyhound bus over Jake Peets and his family for the next three weeks. I mean, it's just – it's so bad. I would love, 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 love to hear Jake Peets' side of the story after this season. He won't do it because that will ruin his career, but it's unbelievable.
1: It is preposterous, and I don't know. I mean, look, Ed always had his issues and was kind of buffoon, but, like, he, there's a sense of arrogance that doesn't seem like that you read about being his downfall that seems to be finally coming to light because apparently he just doesn't care anymore. seems like a guy that's, as Brody Miller put it in that athletic story, certainly lost his way. Anything else take out from the weekend? Everything else kind of went like I thought, at least SEC standpoint, like, Tennessee, uh, Georgia went about it as exactly as I thought. Tennessee pushed them a little bit early, scored some points, but Georgia just really damn good. Sacramento misses an opportunity. Kentucky, okay, whatever. That happened. Anything else
0: stick out? No, not particularly. It kind of went, straw from, or went cl- chalk from there on out. We did the soccer corner on a
1: Friday show, so we'll save it for next Sunday. And uh, So let's get out of here and watch some Monday Night Football. I appreciate the time, dude. I'm glad you made it back. Uh, safely this weekend. And I am sure we will have a detailed breakdown of Vanderbilt's Too Deep come Sunday, because that should be a barn burner.
0: No, oh, yeah. We'll be focusing a lot more on the Newman Pittsburgh game on Friday than we will be on Vanderbilt on this. We're only five days away. So I'm putting
1: it in the show notes. I can't wait. We will talk to you then. <laughs> Perfect. See you man. All right, that's our show. Hope you enjoyed the bonus show. As I mentioned, I just wanted to get what thoughts on here and uh, get a little bonus pod action for the people because it was a uh, big weekend for Ole Miss, and uh, I don't know, thought it deserved two shows. So we will catch you again on either Wednesday or Thursday. Schedule got thrown off a little bit, but we'll have three, two more pods this week for you, so uh, don't worry about that and stay tuned. Appreciate you guys listening, and have a great rest of your week.